Before we jump back into the flow of our story, beginning with verse 13, in case you weren't with us this past Sunday, I just want to get a running head start to establish a little bit of context. And so if you just kind of join me, John 18, we're going to begin with verse 1. We're just going to read what we covered last Sunday. John writes that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, this being the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, I am he. He is in italicized. It was added. He says, I am this divine name of God, the Emi Ego. And Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also stood with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, and no doubt he's referring to his disciples, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which Jesus had spoken just the chapter before, of those whom you gave me. This is part of his prayer. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, the servant's name, John tells us with Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13, picking up where we left off, and they led Jesus away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, in order to avoid any confusion moving forward, I should just take a second and explain a little bit about the political structure in Judea during this time period. Being a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest, this man Annas was appointed high priest. He was appointed to this position in 6 AD, 5 or 6, give or take. According to tradition, and there is some scriptural uh, justification for this, an appointment to high priest was a lifetime appointment. It would last the duration of Annas's life, which, by the way, is where things kind of get complicated. You see, in 15 AD, Annas fell out of favor with Rome. So in kind of a bold attempt to maintain his power, he voluntarily steps aside and appoints his oldest son to be high priest. Well, that doesn't last very long. In fact, it only lasted for two years before Annas has to remove one son and replace him with another son who, by the way, only lasts another two years. These two sons are knuckleheads. So eventually, Annas, still wanting to appease Rome, places his son-in-law, Caiaphas, into the position of high priest. And Caiaphas would serve for some time, from 18 to 36 A.D. Now, the reason that that's important is that within John's gospel in particular, you're going to find both Annas and Caiaphas being referred to as the high priest. From the Roman perspective, Caiaphas officially 
held the office, the position, the title. That being said, Annas was not just the man behind the man, but his original lifetime appointment meant that the religious establishment formally recognized him as being high priest, even though Caiaphas had the title. Now, as we dive into this chapter, you should keep in mind this family, Annas Caiaphas. They were extremely wealthy. Aside from that, they're well-connected. They're powerful, equally corrupt. In fact, they're feared by the Romans. Historically, this crew operated in our more modern context like an organized crime family, enriching themselves by turning the temple and the way that the sacrificial system worked into a cash cow. The Jewish Talmud went so far as to state, writing, quote, Annas made the high priest a den of thieves. Aside from their power over religious affairs, local affairs even, Annas and his family proved to be a continual thorn in the side of the local Roman officials. In fact, we're going to see this play itself out next week in their interactions with the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. These men, case in point, they played dirty constantly dirty. Now, for the benefits of a large Roman audience, a non-Jewish audience, Gentile audience, that, that was unfamiliar by the time John's writing of Caiaphas and Annas, these local affairs. In verse 14, John gives us a little commentary referencing back to something he's already told us. Verse 14, he says, now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people or literally in place of the people. Back in John 11, verses 46 through 53, in response to Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, we're told, and I'll read you a section of Scripture, that, quote, some of the eyewitnesses went to the Pharisees, and they told them the things that Jesus did, the resurrection of Lazarus being one of them. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, as a result, they gathered this council. They said, what should we do? This man works many signs. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. What a testimony. And the Romans, as a result, they'll come and they'll take away our place in our nation. Well, one of them, John writes, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You guys know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for or in place of the people, and that not the whole nation should perish. John gives us a little bit of commentary at this point. He says, Now, this Caiaphas did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that Jesus would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, let's just get back to our scene. Here you have Jesus. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. He's bound, shackled, hands and feet. By this detachment of troops, John says, in addition, the captain, the officers of the Jews. Matthew and Mark tell us that it was at this moment that all of the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. Then, as Jesus is being led away to Annas first, we're going to see that Peter and John kind of circle back. So they all scatter, but Peter and John will kind of circle back, and they'll follow Jesus at a distance. They want to see what happens. Well, verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple, and for clarity, let's just get it out of the way, it's John, it's our author. 
This disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Again, this is Annas. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Jesus is led from the Garden of Gethsemane back across the bloody Kidron. He's led into the city of Jerusalem, specifically the home of Annas. He's going to be interrogated because John was known to the high priest. He's allowed to go with Jesus, we're told, into the courtyard. John then uses his connections to schmooze the gal who kept the gate to let Peter in as well. Now, earlier this very evening, Peter has made a bold proclamation. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say he was going to follow Jesus even if it meant he would lay down his life for Jesus' sake. And we should, to his credit, give him his due. As Jesus is being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and he jumps into the fray, attacking a servant boy cutting off his ear. Sadly, though, this act of bravery didn't work out as Peter had imagined. Instead of an attaboy from Jesus, his actions garnered a rebuke, a stern rebuke. Jesus turns to him. Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Put your sword away, Peter. And then I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus says, I got a plan, man, and you're kind of getting in the way. Jesus then picks up the ear, puts it back onto Malchus's face, and he's led his way. Now, in last Sunday's study, I noted how Peter's fundamental problem centered on two core misconceptions. The first misconception is that Jesus needed his help. No doubt his failure in the garden had quickly corrected that notion. Peter, I don't need your help. You're making a mess. You're in the way. But there was another misconception. And that is that Peter needed to somehow prove himself able to Jesus. As we examine the next few verses, it's important that you keep in mind that for Jesus to accomplish his ultimate work in Peter's life, because indeed, the Lord had amazing plans for Peter had bigger plans for Peter than Peter could have even imagined. But for any of that to take place, something would have to change in Peter. Jesus would have to work in Peter. Jesus would have to tweak some things. You see, this stubborn man needed to come to an all-important realization if he was going to be useful for Jesus. And that is the fact that he wasn't able He wants to prove himself worthy, prove himself able. What he needs to get through his thick skull is that he wasn't. If left to his own strength, Peter would fail miserably. And yet the most glorious truth of this, the most glorious reality, is that Jesus knew Peter wasn't able, and he didn't care. In fact, in response to Peter's declaration that he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus' sake, Jesus immediately turns to him and he says in John 13, verse 38, he says, most assuredly, take this to the bank, Peter. The rooster shall not crow. So you have denied me three times. 
You think you're able? You think you can do Bro, you're going to fail and fail miserably. You're going to deny me three. You think you'll die? You're going to deny me three times before sunrise. For Peter to realize his relationship with Jesus had to be centered on Christ's ability and not his own. Peter had to be first stripped of his self-sufficiency. The fact that he thought he could do it. You know, in his pride, Peter declared, I am able. I'm able to follow Jesus. But he's soon going to learn that he had greatly overestimated himself. Now, again, getting back to our scene. A bound and shackled Jesus is brought into the courtyard of Annas, his home, the high priest. John uses his connections not just to get himself in, he gets Peter in as well. And as Peter is making his way into the home, through the gate, verse 17, John records that the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now, notice what she specifically asked. She asked Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples. That's interesting. The idea behind the statement is that this woman who kept the gate knows John. And not only does she know John, but she knows that John is a disciple of Jesus. And what this means is that John had no problems getting in and out. He's not being arrested. He's not being harassed. Meaning that there's no point or reason for Peter to feel nervous. There's no reason for him to feel unsafe. Peter here, he's caught off guard by the question. He doesn't have to lie. His life's not at risk. He's not going to get arrested. And yet, he denies being a disciple. Aren't you also? You're with one of his disciples. Aren't you also a disciple? It's the most laid-back moment. Easy. Yeah, yeah, I'm with John. I'm one, but no, he denies. Well, verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there for it was cold. Keep in mind, it's early spring. And they warmed themselves there. It's also the middle of the night. And Peter stood with them, and he warmed himself. Peter and John, as you're playing the scene out, they're, they're standing at a distance, watching the procedures with Jesus. And the high priest, Annas, asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, right from the beginning, you need to consider how everything about what is taking place was not only illegal, but was improper. Aside from the fact this is all happening under the cover of, of darkness, happening at night, according to Scripture and Hebrew tradition, you had rights as a Hebrew man. In fact, your rights stipulated that you had to be charged with a crime in order to be arrested. You see, in this situation, it's the opposite. Jesus has been arrested and then brought before Annas. And then Annas questions him about his disciples and his doctrine designed to find a crime that they could then charge him with. It's all backwards. It's all inappropriate. Annas is seeking, in an interrogation, a probable cause to justify what they've already done, arresting him. In addition to that, he wants to create a legal framework that they could ultimately sentence him to death. Well, Jesus, knowing this, verse 20, answered Annas, 
I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue, in the temple, where the Jews always met. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. Ask them what I have said to them. Indeed, they know what I have said. Annas has arrested Jesus without a charge. And now he's wanting Jesus to testify against himself. Now, in response, Jesus points out that according to the Jewish system of justice, a crime, it had to be substantiated by an outside witness, specifically witnesses. So in so many words, Jesus, he's actually making a legal argument to Annas. He's challenging the justification or the legalities of the trial. He's like, I spoke openly. I always taught in the synagogue. You want to interrogate me. You want me to testify against myself. Instead, where where are the witnesses? This is not how this works. If I've committed a crime, bring forth witnesses. And when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck him with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Again, you have Peter and John in the courtyard, warming themselves by a fire. They're looking through some windows, probably it's all open. They're watching this take place, the exchange. And I'm sure that for Peter and John, this particular moment, that Jesus gets sucker-punched, had to have been shocking. They haven't read the remaining chapters. These men, while they should have had an inclination, they don't know what's happening. They don't know what's coming. They don't know this is a grand setup. Here's Jesus making a fair legal argument, and he gets punched in the face in the process. It's in this moment, I think Peter and John, they start to get nervous. The writing's kind of on the wall. This is not, this is not normal. This trial's not going to be fair. Our Lord's getting set up. Well, in response to getting punched, verse verse 23, Jesus answered him. And there's some debate whether he's speaking to the man that punched him. I, I gravitate more to the angle that he's addressing Annas, who probably gave the nod that Jesus should be punched. But Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. And then bear witness, this is a legal term. Provide a witness. But... If well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The word Jesus used when he asked, why do you strike me? Literally means, that word strike, it means to fillet, to break the skin. Like the idea is that Jesus, he didn't just take a sucker punch to the face. He took such a blow by this officer that he's now bleeding. His his skin's been filleted. Jesus' reaction, it's reasonable, isn't it? Where are those witnesses against me? And if they don't exist, why are you punching me in the face for no reason? Now, since Annas doesn't have an answer, he decides to send Jesus bound to the home of Caiaphas, also the high priest. And again, this is all happening at nighttime. John only records for us the specifics of this trial before Annas. Yet a harmonizing of the four gospel narratives reveal that Jesus will in fact undergo two additional trials before he's ultimately handed over to Pilate. So the first trial is before Annas. 
The second will occur at the home now of Caiaphas, before likely a very small portion, a hand-selected portion of the elders. And it's during this trial that Jesus will be mocked, will be beaten. Then according to Luke 22, the final trial will, will occur at daybreak, before an official gathering of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So Annas to Caiaphas, small group of elders, then to the formal gathering of the Sanhedrin. And it's during that trial that they bring false witnesses. They can't get their stories correct. They ultimately charge him with the crime of blasphemy against God. Now as as you study these things on your own, there are two details that I think will help you simplify the timeline. One, and again, this is the best of my estimation. I think it's likely that Annas and Caiaphas, again, their family, that they lived in the same complex, probably shared a courtyard. So if, as you're kind of reading through these and trying to get all the things pieced together, them sharing a courtyard helps put the pieces in place. Secondly, as high priest, the Sanhedrin likely had official meetings in or near the home of Caiaphas, or their official gathering place was also in conjuncture to where Annas and Caiaphas lived. Now, regardless, as all of this stuff is happening, Jesus being shuffled back and forth, John shifts the scene. So John doesn't follow all of this. The other Gospels do. John tells us, though, verse 25, Simon Peter. So the scene gets go back to this courtyard around the fire. Simon Peter stood, he's warming himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Well, Peter denied it and said, I am not. According to Matthew 26, verse 72, in this second denial, Peter actually, we're told, denied with an oath. I do not know the man. Literally, Peter says, I'll be damned. If I know the man. It's not just that it's a denial. It's a denial with a consequence if he's telling a falsehood. He ups the ante, so to speak. Well, verse 26, now one of the servants of the high priest. A re- <laughs> I love this line. A relative of him whose ear Peter had cut off. Remember, Malchus was also a servant of the high priest. He said, did I not see you in the garden with him? I was there. You were there. You cut off my buddy's ear. And Peter denied again. Again, Matthew 26, verse 74 tells us that Peter doesn't just deny again. He began to curse. And he begins to swear, saying, I do not know the man. He starts cussing people out. And then John tells us, and immediately, a rooster crowed. (laughs) In Luke 22 verses 61 and 62, we're given an important detail that John doesn't provide. I think it's important to mention that the very moment the rooster crowed, which by the way, it's bizarre that there's a rooster in Jerusalem. A rooster was not kosher. Um, It was forbidden according to the Levitical law. it's It's not just that Jesus said, hey, when the rooster crows, You'll have denied me three times. Everyone would have been like, there's a rooster? Like, where's the rooster? The rooster's going to crow? There shouldn't be a rooster in Jerusalem. It'd be akin to being like, yeah, you're going to be at my house. Uh, you'll deny three times. And, and then you'll hear a gorilla 
you know, cry out? Like, wait, a, why would you have a gorilla? Where would a gorilla come from? Like, the, the fact that there's a rooster, strange. But we're told in Luke 22 that in that moment, again, Peter's watching these things. Maybe Jesus is being brought out. That Jesus turned and looked at Peter. That word looked, it means to, to perceive into. It's not just like a passing glance. It's, he stares him down. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said that night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Luke tells us that Peter runs out of the courtyard and he weeps bitterly. I mean, imagine the moment. The rooster crows. Peter looks through the window. Jesus, their eyes meet. Jesus' face is swollen. He looks at Peter. Like to say that Peter here has failed to live up to his own standard would be an understatement. Like at one point this very night, like he's ready to die for Jesus. But then a few short hours later, he denies being a disciple. Ultimately, he ends up cussing out a servant girl as he brazenly denies having any relational association with Jesus at all. You're a disciple. No, I'm not a disciple. By the end of this, it's... Yeah, you're a disciple. He's like, I don't even know him. Don't even, I don't have a, I never met the man. And then the rooster crows. He sees Jesus. Proud Peter is utterly broken. He's devastated. And he runs off and he weeps. Then verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. This would be the home of Pilate. It was early in the morning, but they themselves, the religious leaders, did not go into the praetorium. Gentiles, Romans, were unclean. John adds, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. What a tragic irony. These religious leaders wouldn't enter Pilate's home, fearing they'd defile themselves, but they had no problems setting up a kangaroo court and illegally railroading their Messiah, an innocent man. Pastor Damien Kyle, he, he observes that man's capacity for self-deception is profound in the realm of religion. Because the religious leaders who'd set Jesus up, brought him to Pilate, refused to go into his home. John 29, verse 29 says that Pilate then goes out to them. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now for starters, it's likely that this is not the first time that Pilate's heard of Jesus. I th think that's safe to say. Jesus was very well known in the area. Pilate's in charge of the area. No doubt Jesus' triumphal entry would have brought a little intrigue from the Roman governor. In fact, you might be able to make the argument that Pilate would have had to sign off legally on a detachment or half a legion, a tenth of a legion of troops, being used to arrest Jesus in the first place. But the one thing Pilate doesn't anticipate is being woken up early in the morning and finding Jesus at his doorstep. This statement here, what accusation do you bring? It's kind of akin to saying, what's he doing here? Well, verse 30, they answered and they said to him, if he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? And Pilate said, you take him, you judge him according to your law. 
Pilate wants to know why Jesus has been brought to him. The accusation. What's he doing here? How has he violated Roman law, necessitating my involvement? And their response, you look at their response, the response is a dodge. Basically, they say, we wouldn't be wasting your time if he wasn't guilty of something. But they don't say what he's guilty of. And because they fail to provide a reason, Pilate doesn't see why he's now needed. It's why he says, take him, judge him according to your law. What's he doing here? Now the truth comes out. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. John's commentary, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Weeks earlier in Matthew chapter 20, we read that Jesus going to Jerusalem took the disciples aside on the road and said, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests, by the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. Speaking of himself. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be scourged, to be crucified. But the third day he will rise again. The religious leaders, they have formally convicted Jesus of blasphemy in their own court. Blasphemy against God was a a crime punishable by death. Would have been, though, the death of stoning. That's how the Jews did it. The problem was the fact that the Romans had revoked the the Jewish people's ability to enact capital punishment around 5 A.D., They want to sentence Jesus to death. They want Jesus executed. They could do it on their own. They take him out and stone him to death. But they can't do that. That would be illegal. They need Pilate's involvement. Pilate is the only one who has the authority. And crucifixion would subsequently be the method. Then Pilate, verse 33, entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Now, Pilate does ask here a question, a forward question, trying to get to the heart of the matter. He says, are you the king of the Jews? In fact, all four gospel narratives record this as being Pilate's first question to Jesus. What's interesting, though, is that in the original language, the emphasis is on this word, you. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's sizing up Jesus, and he's like, are you? You are, are you really the king? Are you a king I need to be afraid of? And yet Jesus' response is telling. He asks, are you asking because you want to know the truth? Or are you asking because you just want to confirm what others have told you? Like we're going to see again this evening, briefly, but more extensively on Sunday, that the back and forth that Jesus has with Pilate the Roman governor. Through it, you're going to see who's actually on trial. It's not Jesus. It's actually Pilate. Well, verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation. The chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? This reply, Am I a Jew? It's an honest reaction to Jesus' question. Jesus, I'm not a Jew. I don't care. If you're the king of the Jews or not, all I care about figuring out is if you're a political threat to Rome. So what have you done? Man, the volumes that could have been written. You want to know what I've done? Why I've been handed over? I healed the blind. There were some dead people resurrected to life. I taught the people. 
I healed those who were sick. I mean, what have you, I can tell you what I have done. <laughs> but Pilate wants to know what's he done to be in the predicament he's in. Again, the religious leaders haven't given a crime. So verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In this statement, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus is affirming two things to Pilate. One, because he has a kingdom, he's telling Pilate, yeah, I'm a king. I, I, I have a kingdom and I'm a king. Two, because his kingdom was not of this world, Pilate has nothing to worry about. Yeah, Pilate, I'm a king. I have a kingdom. But my kingdom is not of this world, so there's no threat to you. In fact, force isn't how my kingdom advances. You have nothing to be worried about. Pilate therefore said to Jesus, are you a king then? Honest question. Jesus replies, you say rightly that I am a king. In fact, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. And Jesus is referring to his pre-existence here. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus' whole point here is that the vehicle by which his kingdom would grow and expand wouldn't be through force, but the truth. Now, bringing up that particular topic, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. In Luke 23, verses 5 through 9, we're told in response to Pilate's not guilty verdict, the religious leaders were all the more forced, fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, even to this place. But in that, something comes out. We're told by Luke that when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, Galilean, as soon as he knew that, that he belonged in Herod's jurisdiction, he sends Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Pilate, he thinks he has an out here. This man's innocent. I don't know why he's here. I don't know why you've woken me up in the morning. This is ridiculous. Okay, he's got, a, he, he's got a kingdom. It's not of this world. I don't even know what that means. He's talking about truth. I don't know what that means. Why is he here? What's the point? I want to go back to bed. He's not guilty. Let him go. They freak out. He's from Galilee. Oh, he's, wait, what? Well, that's actually not my jurisdiction. See, he feels like he has an out. I'll send him to Herod. Herod is over that, that area. He'll take care of it now. It doesn't take very long for Herod to grow bored with Jesus. And the reason being is that Jesus never even acknowledges him. Doesn't reply, doesn't answer any of his questions. This being the same Herod who had had John, his cousin, beheaded. <laughs> Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. He thinks he's done, he thinks he's good, Jesus shows back up. Now by that point, Pilate is confident of three things. First, Pilate knows that Jesus is an innocent man. Following his return from Herod in Luke 23, we actually read that Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. He said to them, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Indeed, I've examined him in your presence. I have found no fault in the man concerning the things of which you accuse him. 
Not only did I not, he continues, nor did Herod. For I sent him to him, but he's concluded he's done nothing deserving of death. Again, Pilate's summation, I find no fault in this man. So one, Jesus knows, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. Two, Pilate knows that Jesus is being set up by the religious establishment. In fact, in Mark 15, verse 10, and Matthew 27, verse 18, we're told by this point when Jesus returns, Pilate has come to the realization, quote, that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity. The third thing that Pilate's certain of is that there's something weird going on. Now, what do you mean by that, Zach? Pilate knows that what, what's happening in the physical realm, there's something much deeper occurring. In Matthew 27, verse 19, we're provided kind of a behind-the-scenes detail that Pilate's wife sent to him, and this is what she said. She told her husband, have nothing to do with that just man, writing, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So by the time Jesus comes back from Herod, Pilate knows he's innocent. He knows these, these charges are trumped up. They're actually envious of him. And that there's something much deeper occurring. Now, hoping to find a way out of the mess because Pilate is stuck between a rock and a hard place. He knows Jesus is innocent. He's also aware of political repercussions. What would happen if he toes the line, obeys his conscience, and rules against Annas and Caiaphas. So what does Pilate do? I don't have an out. I'm between a rock and a hard place. So he comes out before the people. There was a group amassing outside the praetorium that morning. And in verse 39, he says, You guys have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Well, they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. John then tells us Barabbas was a robber. In fact, Mark 15, verse 7, and Luke 23, verse 19, give us a little bit more of a complete picture of Barabbas, saying that he was in chains with his fellow rebels because they had committed murder in the rebellion. He was a traitor, a rebel, a robber, a murderer, and he's hanging out with bad people all at the same time. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to kind of stop our travels right here. Close of chapter 18. Hope you come back on Sunday as we pick things back up, continue the narrative. But here, Good Friday, I want to share a few thoughts about this man, Barabbas. I think it's a fitting place for us to stop and reflect. First and foremost, this man Barabbas, he's literally the anti-Jesus. His name Barabbas, or Bar Abbas, Abba, it means son of the father. That's what his name literally means. How ironic that you have the son of the lowercase father standing there with the son of the father, uppercase father. And yet, unlike Jesus, who's an innocent man, Barabbas is completely guilty. He was a robber. 
a murderer. He'd been caught in rebellion. Not only were the wages of his sin death, but that very morning, three crosses were already being prepared for Barabbas and his two co-conspirators. That morning, Barabbas woke a condemned man. He woke with his fate totally sealed, certain. He knew he was going to die that day. There's no question that Barabbas had earned his cross. That cross on Calvary, he had earned it. And he deserved it. The crucifixion slated for that morning, it was the just punishment for his crimes. But imagine that moment. That word works its way through the fortress of Antonio. Barabbas, come on out. And they, 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 they chain him up and they breathe. He has no idea what's going on. Probably gets, gets wake, awoken from a slumber, brought up, brought before a crowd. And he looks over and he's now side by side with Jesus. Again, someone he would have known about. <laughs> In that moment, you can imagine that his guilt and sin were exacerbated in the presence of Jesus' holiness and righteousness. What a contrast. Two sons of the Father. You know, it's true that the mob cried out for Barabbas to be released. They were given an option and they cried out for Barabbas. And it's undeniable that Pilate ultimately is the one that issues the pardon. But don't miss the fact that why was Barabbas released? Why was he freed? Did he do anything to deserve it? Do anything to warrant it? Do anything? To, no. That man, yeah, the mob cried out for him. Pilate wrote the ticket. But that man was released for one reason. Jesus literally took his place. Jesus died on a cross meant for Barabbas. Barabbas is set free because a substitute took his place. You know, in a profound sense, we are all Barabbas. Every one of us, we're guilty. Guilty as charged. Specifically, guilty of rebellion. Not rebellion against Rome. Much worse, rebellion against God. We're guilty. In fact, we stand condemned in our sin. Every one of us is destined to death as a result of our crimes. And like this man Barabbas, there is nothing you and I can do to, to avoid the inevitable fate on our own. Barabbas did nothing to deserve his pardon. Set free because of no work he had done. In fact, Barabbas was only saved for one reason. Jesus was nailed to his cross. Like, what a picture of the love of Christ. And that while we deserve death, Jesus died in our place so that we might get set free to have life and life more abundantly. Again, 
Friend, we are all Barabbas. A cross with our name on it. Thank goodness Jesus took our place. And you know, it's really with that thought in mind that I can think of nothing better for us to do than to take a moment as a, as a family and to come to the table to partake of the elements, to recognize in the process, and Andy, if you want to go ahead and come up, the sacrifice that Jesus indeed made for you and I on our cross. Barabbas set free because Jesus took his place.